Are right, we ready? Know, I, I can do the initial intro. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Yeah, that's great. Any, any talking you can do will be fantastic. <laughs> what do we usually say at the start? Do we say hello, listeners? It says, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist okay, Podcast. Okay, there we go. <laughs> where each week we look at a great character and a great story. There it's okay. Go. We've only done it 102 weeks in a row. and welcome to the protagonist podcast where each week we look at a great character in a great story i'm joseph Dorowski. and i'm todd mack and this week we are joined by special guest zach glassett hi welcome well, welcome zach thank you it is uh it's it's kind of an honor to be here and it's also a little bit uh, I'm, I'm a little bit nervous so we'll see how this goes <laughs> it's, it's 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 like i'm, I'm sure a, sure it'll be just person. fine okay uh, this week we're going to be talking about Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, and we'll probably be talking about, you know, the main characters in there. I don't know that we're sing- singling out anyone for the discussion. We'll just see where our interest takes us. Moaning Myrtle. <laughs> really not, an interesting character. Is, we could dig into her. protagonist of this one? I thought she was. I thought it was her. Yeah, well, she, she's important. Aragog. <laughs> this week we'll be talking about Aragog... And Moaning Myrtle. <laughs> so, um, Zach, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? So, I am uh, I'm a grad student at BYU. I actually took classes from, it's still weird to say Todd, so I'll probably say Dr. Mac most of this podcast. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, I took classes from, from Todd uh, for two years during my time at SUU um, and have just kind of... Uh, followed a career, I guess you could say, in Spanish. I'm doing my Master's of Hispanic Literatures and teaching at BYU right now. Um, I just started this semester, and, and I'm loving it. So that's, I guess, a little bit about me on that side. Awesome. Well, we're definitely glad to have you on for this discussion. Oh, we... Yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> All right, listeners, we're just going to tell you, our rhythm is a touch-off, and Todd's going to be talking a lot more because... I have a blind spot and I can't read our script. So Todd has to do everything <laughs> to guide our discussion. So the chi, I feel like the chi is not flowing quite like it should tonight. But um, before we jump into our discussion of trivia, I'd like to remind listeners that today's podcast is brought to you by audible.com. You can get a free audiobook download and 30 day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash protagonist, where over 180,000 titles await you to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player. So uh, now let's talk about some trivia here. So I'm just reading Joseph's notes. So help me if, uh, if you have any, uh, if you have any um, feedback on these or, you want to flesh any of these out, let me know. This is the second of the Harry Potter book series, and it was published in the UK in 1998 and in the US in 1999. We had a lag in the early years of Harry Potter. Yeah. Um, do you know what year you read this? Did you read uh, these as they came out? No, I think it was, I, I think I read this right before the third one came out, which I think was in 2000. So not long after it was out in the US. Okay. I think I read one and two a little bit before the third book came out. Got it. Uh, Rowling was concerned about living up to expectations after the first Harry Potter book was so successful, and she took the manuscript back for six weeks of, of revisions after she had delivered it to the publisher. <laughs> it's kind of amazing thinking of J.K. Rowling, like, being concerned about anything. <laughs> <laughs> no one's going to like this. <laughs> yeah. 
I think you have to have that concern in order to produce, you know, stuff that people do like, though. You can't just be uh, the mindset that anything I throw out there is going to be great. Yeah, but but she, I don't know, she just seems, like, supremely confident when in things that I, when I've seen her speak, and I'm not like a, <laughs> I, I, don't, I, I don't, like, follow her every move, but it's just interesting to think of her as, like, you know, concerned about the stuff that she turns out, because it just seems so great, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so this book went straight to the bestsellers list in 2000 because they were tired of Harry Potter books topping the bestsellers list. The New York times made a separate children's bestsellers list. Uh, this of course means that the children's bestseller list has been dominated by 800 page books with huge amounts of death, murder, betrayal, and you know, stuff like a wraith, like near dead being drinking the blood of a freshly slaughtered unicorn. And that's in the first book of this children's series before people thought it was getting dark and mature. (laughs) Um, <laughs> it's just funny to me that they spun off a children's list and because of Harry Potter specifically and it's like at what point do we stop calling Harry Potter books kids books <laughs> yeah, what time do you start calling them kid, kids books like I mean what is it about these books that says this is a kids book it's marketing <laughs> the main character I think is 11 years old at the first one so maybe that could be part of it yeah i'd say the marketing where it started i think by book four you're probably leaving what you'd call the children's book bestsellers list even though they left harry potter on there (laughs) weird uh so the last number that we could find was from 2013 but at that point harry potter books had sold more than 500 million copies worldwide that's That's a few staggering this is in all languages i'm guessing i believe so yeah Okay. And between the books, movies, video games, theme parks, and merchandise, it is estimated that Harry Potter is worth $25 billion. And this is a franchise that, I mean, when we talk about billion-dollar franchises, often you're going back to the, you know, 60s or or the 40s for some superheroes. This is a fairly young franchise that's worth an awful lot. Just let that sink in for a minute. $25 billion. (laughs) That's a lot of money. Uh, Crazy. So, Zach, how did you come to Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets? Um, well, I was uh, young when these books came out. Uh, I think it, I was in kindergarten or first grade when the first one came out in, like, 97 or 98. Um, and so the second one would have come out when I was in probably second grade, I think, in 99 or 2000. And I remember reading the first one shortly after it came out, which meant I read the second one. I remember my mom would buy them for me because I wasn't old enough to go wait at the midnight premieres, even though I tried to convince <laughs> her that I was. I don't think they started the midnight parties till the fourth one. I, I was still, I still tried, would try and convince her that I could bike the like three miles to Barnes and Noble uh, as a seven year old <laughs> to buy the book on my own. And she would tell me that that was not okay. Um, it, it would magically show up within a couple of days of, uh, within a couple of days of hitting, hitting shelves. And I would, I mean, I think I read the second one in a matter of, matter of days and i was in second grade so i've grown up with these as a kind of a cultural thing Um, how many times have you read these books just once no i read i would reread them the time uh when a new one would come out i would reread them all over again and then i would reread them uh annually i think on last count i had read them at least 12 or 13 times a piece so i had way too much time on my hands during class apparently in elementary school (laughs) <laughs> that's amazing I, I would read during math that's amazing how about you Joe 
Um, I remember my mom giving me, I think the first two at the same time and saying, you should read these. And I, I remember having the reaction like, mm, it's a kid's book. And then at some time, a couple weeks after she gave it to me, I started reading the first one and I read them both straight through like in late into the night. <laughs> I was, I was powering through, uh, very much so. And I don't know how many times I've read them. I would do the same thing from then on. Like anytime the next book was coming out, I would reread all of the series in prep. And for a long time, I listened to the Jim Dale audiobooks uh, when I was going to bed, uh, which I do remember. Maybe I shared this last time we were doing uh, the Harry Potter podcast. I don't remember. But when I was driving out to Michigan for grad school, I remember thinking, oh, I'll just do the Harry Potter audiobooks while I drive. That'll be great. I love Harry <laughs> Potter. It'll, it'll, it'll keep me awake. And I had like this Pavlovian response of hearing Jim Dale's voice. I'm like, oh, this is going to make me drowsy. I cannot. <laughs> I gotta have a new plan in the you know one hour into the drive. I can't I can't do this. <laughs> so I remember I was in my junior year in high school, which would have been nineteen ninety eight, ninety nine, ninety nine. Yeah. And I told this story when we talked about Harry Potter last year, but I I had some crazy just hard stuff going on in my life, and uh, I kind of sank into like a funk, you know, like a depressive kind of funk. And I had a friend who said, I went to him and I was kind of like having a panic attack. And I said, I need to read something that can get my mind off of life because I'm kind of going crazy. And he said, you should read this Harry Potter thing. And he gave me the first book and I went in my bedroom and closed the door and curled up on my bed. And just those first few pages of Harry Potter were like, it was like the best medicine ever. It was so great. And I blew through that book. And then this book must have just barely came out uh, because I think I read these first two, like one right after the other, and it would have been in you know ninety eight, ninety nine, and then and then I was hooked after that. Although <laughs> although I tried to be cool and not do the like oh I'm totally obsessed with Harry Potter thing that all my friends were doing, so I would wait like a week after the book came out before I would read it, <laughs> which is totally dumb. But anyway. By the end, I, I went to the midnight party, I think, of the last of you Deathly Hallows. As an adolescent in high school, you were really worried about appearances and what other people thought, Todd. I yeah, can't but by believe the time that. I was, but by the time I was in college, I was like, I don't care anymore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm ready for this, this long synopsis. Okay, well, listeners, if you are unfamiliar with Harry Potter, before we get into this long synopsis, this particular book involves the story of a monster being unleashed at Hogwarts, the school of witchcraft and wizardry, where Harry Potter is learning to become a wizard and Harry and his friends do their best to stop the monster. Uh, And if that sounds interesting and you are unfamiliar with Harry Potter (laughs) or these books, uh, you can get your hands on them very easily. There are 500 million copies of these books out there. Or you can listen to the Audible version read by the inimitable Jim Dale by going to audible.com slash protagonist. And those audiobooks of the Harry Potter uh, novels are fantastic. But if you uh, if you want to, you can just listen to Todd give us a full summary of the plot of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets right now. The Jim Dale uh, audio version of this is spectacular. <laughs> and just to say how good it is, like, I, I just turned it down to one, 1.0 speed. Because I just I didn't want any distortion in this, and I listened to all what thirteen hours or or something, and it's just pure delight. So good. I wish I could do the, I wish I could do a great Jim Dale voice, but I really don't think I can. All You've I can heard. say is, 
Harry. <laughs> okay. So, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Buckle up. This is, uh, this is a little lengthy. And <laughs> I'll warn you now. So usually when I do a long synopsis of one of these, uh, I go like chapter by chapter and I just kind of do a quick summary. Uh, this time I listened to the whole entire thing and then I tried as best I could to do it from memory. <laughs> And I have not read these 13 times. So if I, if I mess up the order of things or if I leave something out that's just terribly important, uh, feel free to stop me. As the story begins, Harry Potter is living with the Dursleys, his non-magical aunt, uncle, and cousin. They are generally horrible people and they treat Harry terribly, although Harry no longer lives underneath the stairs because the Dursleys are terrified that he will use magic on them if they treat him too poorly. When Mr. Dursley has an important dinner party at the house, he sends Harry to his room and tells him to pretend he does not exist. Harry is already depressed and lonely because his friends Ron and Hermione have not written to him over the entire summer. Then during the dinner party, a small house elf called Dobby shows up in Harry's room and tells him that he cannot return to Hogwarts for school because something very dangerous or bad will happen if he does. Harry tells Dobby that he can't not go to Hogwarts because there's no way that he is going to stay with the Dursleys for a year. Dobby then goes downstairs and creates a scandal which makes Mr. Dursley so angry that he locks Harry in his room for the rest of the summer. Literally <laughs> locked in his room, like fed through a hole in the door. And allowed out periodically to go to the bathroom. <laughs> to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so now Harry's life is totally miserable, but then one night his friend Ron and his two brothers, Fred and George, come to Harry's room in a flying car and bust Harry out. They take Harry to the Weasley house, which Harry thinks is the most amazing thing he has ever seen, even though the Weasley family is quite humble. Here we get introduced again to Mrs. Weasley, who is very kind, Mr. Weasley, who loves Harry and is fascinated with the muggle world, and Ron's little sister, Ginny, who is seriously in like with Harry. When it comes time to buy school supplies, Harry and the Weasleys travel to Diagon Alley by flu powder. But Harry has never traveled in this way, and he ends up in the shady Nocturne Alley. There he sees his arch nemesis, Draco Malfoy, and his father, Lucius. Mr. Malfoy seems to be trying to pawn prohibited dark magical artifacts that he has had in his house. Harry eventually makes it back to Diagon Alley, where he meets up with his friends, Ron and Hermione. They all go to Flourish and Blotts to buy their school books together, including the complete works of a famous, magical, a, a famous magician called Gilderoy Lockhart, celebrity heartthrob wizard with whom all of the witches are in love, including Mrs. Weasley. As they are buying their books, Mr. Weasley and Mr. Malfoy get into a scuffle, and Ginny drops her books. This will be important later. On the first day of school, the Weasleys and Harry take Mr. Weasley's flying car, which is technically illegal because wizards are not supposed to enchant cars, uh, to King's Cross Station, where they are supposed to get on the Hogwarts Express. No, they don't fly the flying car. They drive the flying car. They drive the flying car. Ron and Harry are the last two to go through the magical portal to the uh, train platform, but when they try to go through, they find that it's locked shut. So confused and not knowing what to do, they do the least logical thing possible and take Mr. Weasley's <laughs> flying car and fly to Hogwarts. This is not the last questionable decision made by these kids. No, I do just want to point out, uh, flying the car is illegal. Enchanting it to fly is not illegal because Arthur Weasley That's wrote true. the law and left the loophole in <laughs> so that he could enchant muggle objects. This is true. So when they finally reach the castle, they crash land into the Whomping Willow, a giant magical tree that beats the car to a pulp and almost kills Ron and Harry. But they escape, and when they get to the school, they are told that they are in huge trouble, and if they step out of line again, they will be expelled. I should also mention here that Ron's wand is broken during the accident, and it never works quite the same after that. Again, this will be important later. It turns out that Gilderoy Lockhart is the new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, but despite all the amazing stories in his book, it looks like he doesn't know nearly as much about magic as he claims to. Now it's time for Harry to start Quidditch practice, 
Quidditch is the magical sport that's played on broomsticks. Harry is in Gryffindor House, and their greatest rivals are the bad guys from Slytherin. In a particularly fierce exchange between Harry and Draco over rights to practice on the Quidditch pitch, Draco calls Hermione a mudblood, which is a huge insult that refers to the fact that she does not come from magical parents. Later, Ron, Harry, and Hermione show some kindness to a ghost called Nearly Headless Nick, and he invites them to his death day party, an honor not usually given to people who are still alive. As Harry, Ron, and Hermione are returning from the party, Harry hears a voice coming from the walls. Then the three come across a terrible scene. Mrs. Norris, the groundskeeper's cat, has been petrified in the school hall, and a message has been written in blood on the wall. It says, The Chamber of Secrets has been opened. Enemies of the air, beware. When Harry asks Ron and Hermione if they also heard the voice, they tell him he should not talk about that because hearing things that no one else can hear is not a good sign. At the first Quidditch game of the year, Harry is nearly killed by a rogue bludger, which is a magical ball that tries to knock the students off their brooms. Uh, But someone has bewitched this bludger, and it attacks Harry violently. But he's still able to catch the Golden Snitch before Draco Malfoy, and Gryffindor wins the match. But Harry has a broken arm. Gilderoy Lockhart tries to mend the broken bones, but he ends up dissolving them. This means that Harry will have to spend the night in the infirmary while his bones grow back. That night, another student is attacked and petrified. This time, it is Colin Creevy, who was a young boy who always wanted to take pictures of Harry. Later, Gilderoy Lockhart starts a dueling club. Harry and his friends decide to go. Harry and Draco face off, and Draco sets a giant snake loose. Harry sees the snake wants to attack another student named Justin, so he tells the snake to back off. Remarkably, it seems to understand Harry and leaves Justin alone, but all the students are freaked out because it turns out that Harry can talk to snakes. This is called being a parcel – is it being a parcel mouth? Parcel and you tongue. speak parcel tongue. And you speak parcel tongue. Yep. So this is called being a parcel mouth, and it looked like Harry was egging the snake on. The only other parcel mouth anyone knows of is Salazar Slytherin, the founder of Slytherin House and the creator of the Chamber of Secrets. So things are kind of stacking up against Harry at this point. Shortly thereafter, Justin is attacked by the monster from the Chamber of Secrets, and he is petrified, and now everyone suspects Harry of being the heir of Slytherin. He ends up getting called to Dumbledore's office, where he meets a phoenix called Fox. The phoenix is able to carry large weights, and its tears have magical hearing healing pro- <laughs> healing <laughs> properties. Not magical hearing properties. That would, that would really be remarkable. <laughs> they have magical healing properties. This will also be important later. Dumbledore tells Harry he doesn't suspect him of being the heir of Slytherin, but he asks him if there's anything he wants to tell him. Harry says no. (laughs) Why? I don't know. Harry, Ron, and Hermione decide that they need to get to the bottom of what's going on. Hermione comes up with a plan to make a very dangerous and very difficult potion called Polyjuice Potion, which will allow them to take on the form of Draco Malfoy's friends so that they can talk to Draco and get him to confess to being the heir of Slytherin. They are convinced that Draco is the heir. Uh, They make the potion in a bathroom that is abandoned because it is haunted by a ghost called Moaning Myrtle. She died a long time ago in the bathroom and never left. It's the perfect place to make a super secret potion that will take a very long time. After about a month, the polyjuice is complete, and Ron and Harry, looking like Draco's friends Crab and Goyle, go to talk to Malfoy. Hermione has accidentally turned herself into a cat and sits this one out. But Malfoy tells them that he is not the heir of Slytherin. Uh, One day, Ron and Harry find a little book in Moaning Myrtle's bathroom. It is a diary that once belonged to a student named Tom Riddle, but the pages are blank. Despite this, Harry can't seem to let it go. One day, he starts to write in the book, and the book starts writing back at him. I love this. (laughs) It's so cool and so creepy and so awesome. So Tom Riddle tells Harry that he had been a student at Hogwarts 50 years earlier. Uh, When Harry asks him about the Chamber of Secrets, Riddle shows Harry a memory in which Harry's dear friend Hagrid... Uh, who at that time was a student at Hogwarts, was accused of opening the Chamber of Secrets. It turns out that Hagrid was keeping a giant spider on the Hogwarts grounds, and Tom Riddle turned him in. 
Later, Harry finds out that his room has been sacked and someone has taken Tom Riddle's diary. Because this happened inside the Gryffindor part of the castle, they know that whoever stole the diary must be from their own house. <laughs> it's funny that they come to that conclusion, considering that, like, only weeks before they had uh, successfully <laughs> infiltrated Slytherin. Slytherin. There's a few uh, other moments like that where it's like, mm, did they think this through? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so then Harry hears the disembodied voice again, and Hermione has an epiphany, and she runs to the library, but w- she is attacked and petrified. So now Ron and Harry decide that they need to go to Hagrid's cabin and ask him about the chamber, but while they're talking to Hagrid, they're interrupted by Dumbledore and the Minister of Magic, Cornelius Fudge, who arrests Hagrid for opening the chamber again. Then Lucius Malfoy shows up and tells Dumbledore that he has been suspended as headmaster. Things don't look great. But as Hagrid is walking away, he says out loud for Ron and Harry to hear, they're hiding underneath Harry's invisibility cloak, that if they want to know the truth about what happened, they should follow the spiders. And Dumbledore tells Malfoy, you will find that I will only truly have left the school when none here are loyal to me. You will also find that help will always be given at Hogwarts to those who ask for it. So Harry and Ron are now desperate to find out what's going on, and one night they follow the spiders into the Forbidden Forest. Tiny, sp- tiny spiders lead them to great big huge spiders, and one sp- giant spider in particular called Aragog. This is the giant spider that people thought was the monster from the Chamber of Secrets in Hagrid's day. Uh, Aragog tells them that Hagrid was innocent, but he won't tell them what has happened, or who has opened the chamber, or what the monster inside the chamber is, because it is an enemy of spiders. Then Aragog sets all of his children to attack Ron and Harry, but they are saved, yes, by the Weasley's enchanted car, which has been hanging out in the Forbidden Forest since the beginning of the school year. It's gone feral. (laughs) So cool. So Harry and Ron go back to visit Hermione, and they find a piece of paper in her hand that talks about a magical monster called the Basilisk. Uh, Astounding that McGonagall, Madame Pomfrey... (laughs) No one noticed. Dumbledore, nobody (laughs) noticed that she was holding on to a scrap of paper right outside the library. Unbelievable. So now everything starts to click. Harry realizes that the monster in the chamber is a a basilisk, which is a giant snake. Only Harry could hear it because he is a parcel mouth. It travels through the pipes in the walls, and Aragog had told them that 50 years earlier, a student had died in the bathroom, and they realized that this student must be Moaning Myrtle, and that the door to the Chamber of Secrets must be in her bathroom. They run to tell their news to the teachers, but instead of telling the teachers, they hide in a closet and hear the horrible (laughs) news that Ginny Weasley has been taken into the Chamber of Secrets. Why they hide, I am not entirely sure. Well, they they would say, let's hide, find out what happened, and then we'll tell them what we know. I'm like, wait, (laughs) what is your plan? Like, just pop out after they've been spying on them? (laughs) Yeah, this this really doesn't make any sense, which which only makes sense if you have ever known 13-year-old kids. (laughs) And then it makes total sense. They made a bad decision, yeah. Yeah, or they, they didn't think everything all the way through. Or well, they, didn't, they didn't want to share information with authority figures. Yeah, they, that all makes sense with 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds. Yeah, I, I, I think part of what it was, too, is there was, like, a, a, a leader or the teacher in has, had done, like, a curfew, and they were out after hours, so they were going to be in even more trouble. And so they were like, oh, we can do this on our own, because if we go, we'll get in even more trouble. And then if we're wrong, so it was just, like, you know, the, the typical 13-year-old Harry Potter Got it. So McGonagall tells Lockhart that he should go and find Ginny since he's the expert, but mostly she just wants to get rid of him. 
Uh, Ron and Harry then go to Lockhart's office to tell him that they know where the chamber is, but he's packing his things, getting ready to run away. He tries to wipe their memories, but Harry uses his newly developed dueling skills to disarm Lockhart, and he and Ron force him to come with them to open the Chamber of Secrets. They go to Morning Myrtle's bathroom, and Harry uses his parcel mouth, tongue, he uses parcel tongue? Yes. To open... <laughs> he doesn't actually use his mouth to open the chamber, he, um, or, or his tongue. He speaks parcel tongue and opens the Chamber of Secrets, which is behind the sink. Then he, Ron, and Lockhart slide down a big pipe to the front door of the Chamber of Secrets. Lockhart is able to grab Ron's wand from him, and he tries to cast a forgetfulness spell on Ron and Harry, but because he's using Ron's broken wand, the spell backfires, and there is a big explosion, and the roof caves in, leaving Harry on one side and Ron and Lockhart on the other. Lockhart has lost his mind because of the spell. Harry goes Just into quick, the chamber I wanna... alone. I want to touch on the Lockhart thing. Like this is, um, I mean, we, it's clearly implied throughout that he's a fraud. Like he's written these books about his grand magical adventures and everything that he's managed to do. But when uh, it's in the chamber of secrets that he reveals to Harry and Ron, that he's found magical people who have actually done the things in his books and he puts a memory charm on them. So they forgot that they did them and he just writes himself into the version of their story. Yes. So now Harry is alone inside the chamber, and he comes face-to-face with a now-embodied Tom Riddle. He tells Harry that he fed off of Ginny's energy because Ginny was the first person to have the diary. It turns out she picked up the book when her books got mixed up with Mr. Malfoy's at the bookstore all the way back at the beginning in Diagon Alley. So she's been telling all of her deepest secrets to this diary that talks to her, and little by little, the diary kind of feeds off of her her secrets and her energy, and it takes her over and forces her to write the messages on the walls and to open the chamber. Oh, and Tom Marvolo Riddle is actually Lord Voldemort. His name is an anagram. Harry stands up to Voldemort and shows loyalty for, for, for Dumbledore, and at that moment, in sweeps Fox the Phoenix and drops the sorting hat on the floor of the chamber. Now Voldemort sets the basilisk on Harry, and Harry knows he can't look at its eyes because he will be petrified or killed. Then Fox goes in and gouges out its eyes so that it can't kill Harry with its gaze. Then Harry grabs the sorting hat, puts it on his head, and somehow pulls a sword out of the sorting hat. He uses the sword to kill the basilisk, but he is bitten in the arm in the process. Now he is dying. But Fox comes and cries on his arm, and the tears heal Harry. He then grabs a basilisk fang and stabs the diary, and that is the end of Tom Riddle. Now, everything wraps up quite nicely. Ginny gets better. Dumbledore is reinstated. Uh, everybody gets de-petrified. Lucius Malfoy, accompanied by his house elf, Dobby. So now Dobby's back. Uh, and he's... So Malfoy is back at Hog- Hogwarts. He's hopping mad um, because Dumbledore has been reinstated. And then as Malfoy is leaving, Harry gets an idea, and he puts Riddle's diary in a dirty sock, and he gives it to Mr. Malfoy, and Malfoy throws it at Dobby because it's a disgusting, slimy, bloody sock. And it turns out that if a master gives his house elf an item of clothing, that sets the elf free. So now Dobby is free, and he loves Harry. Harry goes back to live with the Dursleys for the summer. The end, basically. <laughs> it's like basically the story. And I know I've left out some stuff, but... No, that was uh, that was impressive. I think you gave us uh, the skeleton of everything we need for that story. Yeah. And I miss anything, Zach? Uh, not, not without being nitpicky. No, oh. I just am very. Uh, I the, the only thing I could think of was the, and it was just other stuff that was funny stuff that was coming to me as you were like the whole nearly headless Nick and the half inch of skin that's holding his head on. I remember <laughs> laughing at that so hard when I was reading it. 
So just little things like that. But okay, we got the we got the we got the gist. Okay. One bit of uh, nerd pedantry: you did call Filch the groundskeeper, and I believe he's the caretaker of Hogwarts. Yeah. But other than that, <laughs> I have no I complaints. I'm sorry, because <laughs> Hagrid is the groundskeeper. He's the gameskeeper, isn't he? Oh, maybe you're right. Yeah, I think he's the gameskeeper. But Filch is the caretaker. Okay, well, <laughs> I stand again, corrected. Again, pedantry. We don't need it. <laughs> Actually, can we linger on pedantry for a minute? Because I love Harry Potter, and I love all of the books. But there's a few things that bug me, and they still bugged me when I listened to it most recently in prep. I think you this. and I have spoken. I think you and I have spoken about these, but go ahead. <laughs> All right, a couple of them. Uh, the car, the flying car. Like, there's this huge deal about how illegal the flying car is and how much trouble that is. And the Harry Potter novels open on a flying motorcycle that no one mentions. Interesting. <laughs> I never thought of that. Uh, a couple others. Again, none of these are huge things, and I still love the story. But um, when Tom Riddle makes Harry go into his memory in the diary, it starts with the headmaster Dippet being alone in his office and hanging out for a few minutes before Riddle shows up, which always seemed odd for Riddle's memory to contain what other people were doing before he got there. Interesting. See, you're such a better reader than I am. I'm, or more obsessive about Harry Potter. <laughs> uh, the chamber entrance, was that created by Salazar Slytherin like a thousand years ago? And the tap <laughs> and the, the pipes are all still there. That one, that one, hold on. I know there's a part in the chapter of the book when they're talking about, uh, they're in uh, History of Magic, and they're in Professor I would Pierce's love it class. if there's another explanation for this that I've just missed. If, yeah, let me see if I can find it really quick. Let's see. Because a thousand years before, what you're saying is a thousand years before, they wouldn't have modern plumbing. So, yes. So and certainly the porcelain would have worn out, even magical porcelain, I would guess, of the, <laughs> the sink that they use as a secret entrance to the Chamber of Secrets. So it says in the book that because of everything that happened, that Slytherin leaves the school, and Professor Bins is telling this, that uh, the story goes that Slytherin had built a hidden chamber in the castle of which the other founders knew nothing, and according to legend, he sealed it until his own true heir would be able to come and open it and unleash the horror within, and I quote, use it to purge the school of all who are unworthy to study magic, end quote. So, so this, did he seal it with a tap with a little squiggled snake? <laughs> that, that is not there in the fine print. <laughs> maybe Tom Riddle, maybe Tom Riddle, like, so there was something there before, and it was sealed, and when Tom Riddle found the, the door to the Chamber of Secrets, he... he magically made a sink and scribbled a little snake on the side of it. This is going to keep me awake. Uh, I'll take that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Can I tell you the one that bothers me? Yes, please. Um, I'm sure you guys have thought of this and maybe there's a great explanation, but so everybody that everybody that, uh, that encounters the basilisk is petrified because they don't look at the snake directly. It's, it's mediated somehow. So they see a reflection in water or they see a reflection in a mirror or Colin Creevy looks at it through the camera, or Justin sees it through nearly headless Nick's, like, body. So why can't you just wear glasses? Like, why why don't Harry's glasses... Oh, I've just... never thought of this, Todd. <laughs> I haven't either. That's a very, very good question. Yeah, if... Uh... Like, why don't you just wear glasses when you're going to go face a basilisk? Because obviously, like, all you need is a piece of glass between you and them. I, I'm sorry. Oh wow! I yeah. Okay. 
Uh, Zach, do you have any you want to throw out there? (laughs) um, The only one I can think of is how in the world, uh, and and it's something you guys talked about last uh, last Harry Potter episode, house points. I don't understand them. They drive me insane. (laughs) I wish I understood the method to the madness. Because I just I just feel like I don't you know they they lose a hundred points each for being late to school for the sorting but then you know they lose or they gain so many points for it's just I don't understand it yeah I really want I really want to do just house points in a class someday <laughs> I'm gonna split my class into four and we're gonna do house points and I'm just gonna be completely arbitrary I think yeah because in the first book we talked about the insane inflation because in the first book like they're getting one point and everyone's really excited to have earned one point <laughs> at yeah. a time it's because they're first years yeah uh but yeah harry and ron get 200 points each at the end and, and like at the end of the uh the first book it was just kind of dumbledore arbitrarily saying enough points that gryffindor won the house cup instead of slytherin <laughs> which again that was a jerk move by dumbledore in that at the end of the first book <laughs> And, and Neville even got him for being uh, petrified totally and completely. Like, he got points for being petrified. So I want to know, like, if I get cursed, do is there a reward in this? Like, can I just curse my friend and get points from my house? And, like, I don't know. I just, I always wondered about that. Always. So. All right. Well, now that we've picked a few nits, what uh, do we love about this particular story? <laughs> Why is Harry Potter the first uh, franchise that we're revisiting on the protagonist podcast? Is it really? It is. Yes, it yeah. Because it's amazing. <laughs> it yeah. really, it really, truly is. Like we can, we can sit here and and pick at these nits. But we only see them because we've read or listened to the book so many times. It's so good. Like the, I, I just remember reading when when Harry writes in the diary and the diary writes back at him, like like you just want to drop the book and and say. That's the coolest thing I've ever seen. It's so awesome. I think like, I remember being very tired when I got to that point, and I was like, "I'm going to go to bed real soon." And then I like saw that, I'm like, "Nope, <laughs> I am powering through." Oh my gosh, and finding out so what cool. happens. Yeah, the, um, like I really enjoy the first book, but a lot of the elements of the first book are, I mean, it's borrowing from the classic heroes myth, but even like the philosopher's stone, that's not really an original creation. But for me, the idea of the diary containing the soul of, you know, the 16 year old soul of his yeah. enemy. Like that was like, Oh, she's doing something I've never seen before. <laughs> like this is whole cloth originality for me. Now I'm sure some listener will say, Oh, there's a precedent for this kind of magical object in this other story that I've never read. But for right. me, that was saying she's now like taking a step as a writer. And instead of borrowing all these kind of classic elements and putting them into something that was new and very well written and delightful in terms of her prose, uh, this was now starting to introduce things that made me go, Oh, wow. (laughs) I've, I've never even considered something like that. And as we found out later on, like she's really starting to weave elements that are paid off five books later, you know, the the idea of the Horcrux, like even um, I really, really realized it. This time when she talks about uh, that, he picks up the diary and he says, like, I don't know why, but it felt like an old friend. And like, uh-huh. he has a piece of Tom Riddle's soul in his head, but no reader knew that <laughs> at the time. Yeah. But after book seven, when we find out about all the Horcruxes, uh, that that one line from the second book makes ha- has so much more meaning. She's definitely playing the long game. Yeah, there was there was the part of the end when they're talking with Dumbledore and he says, uh, he says something to Harry about how the only way that he'd be able to speak parcel tongue is if he's a descendant. And so, and, and Harry says almost incredulously, so 
I have a piece of Voldemort inside of me. And I, I can just imagine, you know, that the picture in my head of Dumbledore kind of looking at him saying, it appears so. <laughs> and I just remember reading it this time and going like, how much did Dumbledore know at that point? Like, what what does he know as as the headmaster and as kind of the the wise, you know, character in the story? Like, what did he know that we don't know? And I just, I, I want there to be like a spinoff book about Dumbledore, like prior to this and kind of giving context. But <laughs> yeah, that was... That would be awesome. So let's talk about some characters let's talk about Harry. Uh, how would you say that Harry is different in this book than he is in the, in the first book? So in the first book, he was definitely, I mean, he, he was being introduced to this whole world. So there was the element of like, I don't understand what's happening, but he, he's much more comfortable now in the first book. He was a rule breaker, but I'd say some of his rule breaking is almost more brash in this one. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, it, well, and I guess some of the biggest brash rule breaking actually comes from Hermione, which is a break from her character <laughs> before. Uh-huh. Uh, so, so I, I guess there's more comfort level being at the school, and that lends to actually making him a little more um, reckless. Yeah. Reckless, yes, that's the word I want to use. I had some synonyms for that that didn't feel quite right, but reckless, <laughs> yeah. So I'd say he's more reckless than in the first book, even though the first book is insane in terms of child endangerment <laughs> and yes. what he's left to do with Ron and Hermione at the end. What do you think about about Harry's progression, Zach, in um, this novel? I think I think we see a change in his and in the first one. He obviously goes in through the the whole series of events at the end and faces off with Quirrell and gets the Sorcerer's or Philosopher's Stone. But there was no real risk at that point to anybody but himself and Quirrell. And I think that we saw how loyal he was and how faithful to his friends. And then we get to this one where he's where Ginny is, you know, trapped in the lair of of the basilisk and he goes down to save her. So it's not that he's just putting himself in danger, but he's putting himself in danger to save somebody else. He's it's that I feel like it's that loyalty and that friendship and his uh, like wanting to help and save everybody is shown even stronger in this book than in the last one. Yeah, I like that. I I think it's interesting what you pointed out, Joe, about Hermione and her willingness to break the rules <laughs> because we've spent so much time setting up the fact that Hermione is not a rule breaker, right? She's the other one saying, Harry, we can't do that thing. And, uh, and then she's like, Forget about it. I'm just going to break every rule. <laughs> like we're going to we're going to break a hundred rules to make Polyjuice potion because and and this is it's it's cool to see how even this early in the story and we talked about her setting the foundation for this long narrative the arc that that goes over the seven books. But even here we start to see like the breakdown of Hogwarts and. And like the 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 true system, and maybe this is why the how, the whole house point thing seems so like silly to us, because it's completely inconsequential. <laughs> like it just doesn't matter at all, and and even here it doesn't matter at all. And even Hermione, who's like, if anybody at Hogwarts should be like completely bought into the system, it would be Hermione, and she just she just doesn't give a fig about any of it, <laughs> because she realizes that this there's this whole the whole Voldemort thing is so much more important than the school and yeah, like I, rules 
I think it's starting to be hint- hinted there. You definitely, like, buy, like, the fourth or fifth book, it's like, who cares <laughs> at all? But in the first book, it's everything that the House Cup, who wins, is. Right. Like, that's the big payoff. Um, I also think it's interesting for Hermione that her willingness to break the rules for Polyjuice potion, potion, like, it feels like a violation of her character because so much has been set up about how straight-laced she is. And, you know, she crosses every T and dots every I in everything that she does. But I think it's true to her character that what would make her break rules is this uh, ability to learn <laughs> and to, yeah. to discover and to push herself uh, to, to find out more, um, you know, to get this book from the forbidden section and, and to test her uh, ability to do it. To me, that still is true to her character. And there's a, and there is a clear moral compass for these kids like throughout, I don't, I can't think of a time. Maybe later when Harry's like really angsty, but I can't think of a time now where Harry, Ron, or Hermione makes a decision based on like I'm just rebellious. Like I just, I just want to break rules. And I, and I know that there are a lot of people that have been really hung up about the Harry Potter books because these kids break the rules at the school, <laughs> but it's always in the pursuit of like a greater good and a clear moral directive that just supersedes like school rules <laughs> this uh when i was in grad school I, for a while i was working at the university writing center and we needed a paper that uh writing students could all look at uh, to to judge uh and you know say what could be improved and we were writing a mock paper that um we were just making it so that there'd be no issues with sharing a, a you know a student but the subject that we were writing on was the ethics of rule breaking in harry potter <laughs> nice like well, like you said there's a moral compass that goes behind it even as you would say well rule breaking's wrong and, and the books kind of clearly say well there can be a higher good that causes you to violate what normally would be in place as the moral right thing to do yeah i have a question as I was reading this book, I just kept coming across this idea of identity. I think it's fundamental, especially in this book. Um, so there's the whole issue of like purity of blood, and if you're a you know if you're truly like magical born, then you're you're better than everybody else. Uh, but then we also get like the polyjuice potion is all about identity and taking on someone else's identity. Um, and then there's the issue of like Ginny being possessed by Tom Riddle and there's the Riddle and Voldemort, the Riddle and Voldemort thing. And then there's also the, that thing that, I mean, this idea that Harry's like, I don't know what house I should have been in. It seems so weird to have the sorting hat just sort of pop up, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but, but the sort, I feel like the sorting hat really is kind of fundamental to this story. And because Harry's struggling with this idea of identity and he's, he's starting to see the connections between him and Voldemort. And he's, he's wondering, you know, what all of that means. And then at the end, uh, Dumbledore says this thing to Harry. He says, it's not, what does he say? It's our choices that define us much more than our abilities. Something along those lines. It's yeah. I wrote it down. It's, um, do you remember it, Zach? I'm, I'm actually looking it up right now. Um, it says, uh, I'll race you to it. How close was I? It's our choices, Harry, that show what we truly mm-hmm. are. Yep. Um, and, and, and so, can can I just add? I think it's interesting because we have in that same that same uh, what Dumbledore's saying there is that Harry's having now he's having this like, am I that much like Tom Riddle? And Dumbledore is saying, what that's what makes you different. 
from Tom Riddle is your choices, which I think it goes kind of back partially to what we were saying about foreshadowing in the series, but also like that feeling of identity is, am I going to be the new Tom Riddle? Am I going to be, you know, the one student at Hogwarts that, uh, that kind of gets a bad rap afterwards for turning into Voldemort, which I mean, is not the best of decisions. Um, <laughs> but really it was, it was Voldemort or Tom Riddle's choices that defined him, not his ability. And I think that's also what sets Harry apart in that sense. And I mean, very much, uh, there we're being given the parallels between Harry Potter and Tom Riddle and you get, um, you know, the, the kind of the Jungian doppelganger <laughs> yeah. uh, archetype uh, between those two. So I'd like to play devil's ad- devil's advocate for just one second and ask, is it really Harry's choices that define him? Because it seems an awful lot like a bunch of stuff that happened when he was a baby yeah. defines him. He was the chosen one for something he had nothing to do with. <laughs> He's got the scar on his head. He's got Voldemort's soul inside of him. Like that's that's not that's not by his choice. Well, I, <laughs> He's not the chosen one by choice. I I, I think of uh, the episode when you guys talked about the Hunger Games and talking about Katniss and how it was kind of discovered that she really doesn't act much. She just reacts based on what is around her. And I think that's I think that Harry sees what's wrong and kind of grabs it by the horns. And tries to do something about it, tries to make a difference, because he, he very well could have said, I'm not going down there to save Ginny, or I'm not going to take the Polyjuice potion, like, I'm just going to sit this one out and see what happens. And he very much doesn't, regardless of what his abilities are. So I want, it's interesting when I hear Dumbledore telling Harry about why, what is it? So Harry says, you know, why was I sorted into Gryffindor when the when the sorting hat said that I would have been great in Slytherin? And Dumbledore says, yes, you would have been great in Slytherin. As a matter of fact, you have all of the characteristics that Voldemort would have wanted in one of his hand-picked uh, disciples. In in large measure because he it's, he has Voldemort's soul inside of him. So it's like... I'm, I've been really fascinated with this idea of identity and like knowing who you are and how do you even know who you really are? It's like, um, it's, it's really, really hard. Uh, but it seems really important to like Western culture in general that we've, that we do this kind of soul searching and try to figure out who we are. But with Harry, it's especially difficult to know who he really is because when he was a baby, he was he got zapped and he got the half of a guy's soul stuck in him. Well, an eighth. <laughs> an eighth. And so like how do we even know who Harry really is? Like how much of Harry is Harry and how much of Harry is Voldemort? Because even the things like like being being kind of reckless and and being, you know, willing to break rules and being uh, like brave and I mean uh, being a leader. Being a leader and being kind of like clever uh, and and getting what he wants, like those are all things that Voldemort praises like those are those are things that he seeks after in part because it's it's him so what's harry like who what would Harry be like if he never got zapped like how much of how much of him would still be him? Does that question make sense yeah um and I think we're 
we're troubled in this narrative because of you know what you're pointing out about Harry, like this idea of his choices defining him. But we also have the other double that we're given of of Neville Longbottom, who evolves through all seven books. Like where we're at, Neville's still. <laughs> We don't really get a ton of Neville in this book. Yeah, he's he's not much uh, in this one, but by the end, he's one of the most significant characters in the yes. in the final battle um, because of his choices as well. I, I, I think that Neville is actually a really good like opposite to Harry in that Neville is the other one that could have been the child of the prophecy had it not been Harry. Um, and I, I always looked at Neville as kind of that mirror to Harry in like what would have happened if it would have been switched. Not to say that Harry would have been forgetful and like kind of a squib at magic, but that he would have had difficulties in other things and would have had to come into himself and find himself in a different fashion. I like that. I don't know. I just think I, I'm I'm fascinated with this idea of like I want to write a fanfic. <laughs> I want somebody to write a fanfic about like. Voldemort zaps somebody else that night and Harry just grows up as a baby. Why? I would imagine there's a fanfic of Neville getting hit. <laughs> that be. one must exist because be. we, were, we were introduced to that parallel timeline multiple times in, in the series. Yeah. Um, while we're still talking about identity, um, I, I, one thing I love about the journal is um, how immediately trusting Harry is of that source of information. Cause it's giving him <laughs> what he wants to hear. Uh, yes. Well, not like who he wants to hear, but it's giving him information that he wants. And I just think it's really interesting that this was written, you know, before the internet, but so much of the issues with, you know, source checking and <laughs> who's telling you what, and do you just believe it? Cause it's what you, you know, what you were looking for uh, are playing out in this magical journal, <laughs> in a Harry Potter story. That's such a cool point. Yeah. I had not thought of that, but <laughs> you're absolutely right. He just, he... he asked the question. It gave him an answer. He's like, oh, <laughs> here's the answer. <laughs> um, but at the, at the same time, he, like, he doesn't want it to be the answer because Tom Riddle tells him it's Hagrid. But this is the, uh, one other thing that I wanted to raise. Um, I think, so this book is on one level a mystery story of who's attacking students, who's releasing the monster Slytherin, who is the heir of Slytherin. And the red herring that we're given throughout and, and there's multiple things that are given to try and make us believe it's Hagrid. Like we found him in Nocturne Alley at the beginning of the story. Yeah. The Tom Riddle tells us that, but do you remember at any point in reading this, did any of you believe that Hagrid was really the heir of Slytherin? No, no. Yeah. It, to me, like as far as like the mystery writing part, that's just a bad red herring. Like even though she kind of lays things out, I don't think any reader at any point was convinced that that's really what we we're supposed to be uh, it's believing. Like Harry, it's almost like Harry himself is a better red herring. Like the, the evidence stacks up against Harry so convincingly that even though we know as readers that it's, it's not Harry. I mean, we, we really, at, at no point was I thinking maybe it's really Harry, but it's so easy to see why everybody in the school assumes that it's Harry. And, yeah, and I agree with that. I, I would also add that it goes back to what uh, Todd was saying about uh, identity, that what it does is make you question, like, even just for a second, do I really know who Hagrid is? Because all we really know about him is that he was a, you know, a half-giant that got kicked out of Hogwarts for some reason. But it, it kind of, I remember when I read it when I was really young wondering, is that, like, could it be Hagrid? Would he, and trying to think of every reason why it couldn't be and try and I think that does go back to identity there, to where we don't really know a whole lot about Hagrid. I don't think at this point. So, 
Well, we don't know a whole lot about his history, but there's so much we know about yeah, his personality, who, who he is yeah. and who Harry, you know, trusts him to be that for me, that red herring part of the mystery wasn't a path that like deflected from who really was the heir of Slyther- Slytherin. It's, it's certainly not the strongest part of the story. No, yeah, no. no it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I wanted to be Snape so bad when I was little. I was like, isn't it Snape? Can it not be Snape? <laughs> I think everyone wants Snape to be the bad guy in every Harry Potter book. Every like, oh, it must be him. <laughs> I cannot wait until we talk about books five, six, and seven. <laughs> I remember having very strong debates before the seventh book came out about whether Snape was really going to be a bad guy or not. I'm sure that you and I had some of those together. I had very strong feelings about that, and I'm I'm excited to share them with you in five years when we talk. About that. <laughs> Uh, anything else? Where do we go from here? Uh, should we talk about Ron for a minute? Yeah. Okay, I guess this is one of those other things. Like, we talked about how, uh, as the tone of the series matures, some of the things you look back on, like, it seems a little odd. Uh, Ron's wand, like, everything about wands gets a little weird once you learn about <laughs> wand lore later on. <laughs> like, the idea that you become the owner of a wand and it will only work well for you. Like, Ron's wand never should have worked well for him as a hand-me-down from his brother. Ever. <laughs> much less that it's you know an older wand it's that it was his brother's wand and ron didn't defeat him (laughs) and like when they go (laughs) when they do a dueling club like does every time someone expelliarmuses someone else do they become the owner of the new wand (laughs) i don't know because wouldn't they wouldn't they willfully go into that dueling club so does that negate i don't know (laughs) now now i'm gonna stay up all night thinking about this wand lore (laughs) Wand I'm sorry, I, and basilisks. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in, in this book, I think Ron um, shines at, m- even more than the first book as like as the loyal friend. And obviously, in later books, he gets moodier and angrier and angstier. Um, <laughs> I want to. I totally want to get back to that. Just remember, moody and angsty, and then we'll go back to it. Can, but, can continue. But Ron is both the uh, a loyal friend to Harry, but a, a loyal brother to Ginny, which um, I think elevates his character a bit from just the wise cracking friend, um, which is kind of what we had in the first book a bit. Uh, two things. One is uh, one thing that I noticed. So what I was totally in on team Harry and Hermione for a long time, like for long after this book ended and many books after this, I was still like, can't Harry and Hermione just get together because I just never saw what Hermione saw in Ron. Basically. I, I still don't talk. <laughs> Maybe you'll, you'll open your my eyes right now. But, but I will say that there's a lot of groundwork laid in this book that, uh, that shows the loyal, like the fierce loyalty that Ron has to Hermione. Yes. Like the, when Draco calls Hermione of my blood, it's uh, Ron that is the one that defends her. Yeah. He, he stands up for her on multiple occasions and like you can now, you know, with 2020 hindsight, it's so clear to see that she was setting this up from the beginning to be, uh, you know, the way that it turned out. The thing that I wanted to say about Moody is, um, the what are the plants called the the magical plants uh, that they use mandrakes. oh the mandrakes, mandrakes. Yeah. the mandrakes i love the way that the mandrakes mature <laughs> yes it's so delightful and how so they go yeah let's walk the, through it 
So, th- so these ki- these people are all petrified by the basilisk, and the only way to unpetrify them is to make a, a potion using mandrakes, which are plants that, in the beginning, are babies. They're they're baby roots. So you pull the plant up, and the and the roots are a baby, like a crying baby and, face, yeah, <laughs> <crying> uh, body. <laughs> and then they and then they mature, and as they mature, Madame Pomfrey is is it Madame Pomfrey? No, yeah, it's a. Uh, 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 is it sprout. Pomfrey? Sprout. No, Pomfrey is the uh, it's, Sprout. Yes, Pomfrey is the nurse or the, I, the yeah. Professor Professor Sprout. I also, is t- oh, sorry. I, I just I also think it's worth noting that if they cry and you hear it, the cry will kill you. Like yes, it, that that is it. Just seemed like the craziest craziest way to die. Like oh, how did he die? Oh well, I'm, like the mandrakes got him. Like oh no. But at the same time, that's uh, it is setting up that the one. idea of the sight killing you, like the the basilisk threat. Like yeah. it's saying, like senses can be fatal in the wizarding world. Yeah, I've wondered at some point, sometimes if my own children will <laughs> not kill me with their screaming. <laughs> but uh, but no. So as they mature, I can't remember all the details on this. But as they mature, they like they get moody and secretive. <laughs> They get moody and secretive, and then they know that they're that they're out of childhood and into adolescence, and then they start pairing off and living with each other. <laughs> yeah, they, so start, they start trying to move into each other's spots. <laughs> they start having big parties and like loud music and stuff, and then they and then they start potting, like like <laughs> get it going off and pairing off in pots with each other, and then they know that now they're like ready. <laughs> it's just so it's such a great like small detail that doesn't have to be in the book. And makes it so great. And I, I think it's easy It's easy for some people who have never read Harry Potter or, I don't know, maybe they have. But to just look at the Harry Potter books and say, like, well, there's a million other books like Harry Potter. And what makes these books so much better than, you know, any other number of books about kids, magical kids that go to a school or, you know. I mean, there's so, so much, so many books that have tried to replicate what Rowling did with the Harry Potter books and, you know, taking the time to, to add in just this delightful little description of the mandrakes and how they mature is one of the things I think that elevates this above a lot of the other stuff that tries to be as good as this is. I absolutely agree with that, that um, like these little asides are insights into the, the wizarding world that are just um, color for the story like the like when you do a plot somewhere you're going to leave those things out but for a reader it's just um what gives a a a lot of the charm to the book is those details that's a pure joy i I think the best part about the mandrakes is the part where professor sprout is trying to put scarves and socks on them and it's such an important job that she trusts no one else to do it right (laughs) like they really need that i they need that much protection scarves and socks I, just, mother. I have so many questions about mandrake fashion. Well, and then and then she has to slice them up to make the mandrake potion at the right. end. Like, does she get attached to any of these? She doesn't. She can't name them because. So now you're going to be up all night thinking about basilisks Gosh, and wand lore and mandrakes. This is this is great for my homework. I'll get so much done. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's great stuff. All right, what you guys. Uh, have any other favorite parts that you just want to give a shout out to before we wrap up? Um, I, I just remember because I was so young when I read these, I would get really nervous uh, about certain things like the Whomping Willow. After reading that, I was scared to climb trees for a little while. Um, as like a nine year old (laughs) kid, like I did not want to climb a tree, but I, I remember loving reading the Whomping Willow because I think 
I, I think it's the first time where like a seemingly normal plant came to life. And the fact that that could be so kind of going back to what we were talking about with the mandrakes is something that seems like it would just be so. And even though it does play a big part in later stories, it just seems like this crazy tree that's on like, why would she include that? I think that was one of my favorite parts reading it as I was growing up is to like laugh at how the, the tree got in a fight with a car and just like the, the, the humor of that yeah. head was always funny. Um, what you just said, it really made something stick out to me for what works so well. And even though we, you know, we picked some nits early on and we said that um, like the red herring about Hagrid doesn't really work for us. As far as like laying out the long-term mystery across all seven stories, she does such a good job of introducing an element and making you think that the reason that element was introduced has been resolved. But then later on you come back and you're like, Oh, that thing matters so much more. Like the Whomping Willow is one where the Whomping Willow beats up the car and it's kind of like an instant punishment for um, Harry and Ron for having broken the rules and the, the laws of the wizarding world. Um, and you think that's kind of it for the Whomping Willow. Uh, but then you find out the Whomping Willow is this key moment to both Harry Potter's family history and for the plot of what's going to be carrying on in later, later books. And you also think that it's the end for the car, and then the car comes back. Like, it's it's everything's linked. There's like connections to connections to connections to connections, and the the structure of of the whole Harry Potter arc is one of the most beautiful, like uh, amazing creative feats of you know modern times. I think it's just such a cool. It's such a great story. Um, I, I was just real quick before we, we move on, I, I just want to say like when you watch um, like a mystery, like a detective procedural show on TV, like so often you see, well, I know that character actor from something else. So he's going to be a key character <laughs> later on. Yeah. Um, and and it, it, that, that kind of recognition can ruin it. And even in sometimes in books, I think of too big a deal of something like in your summary, you jokingly said this can be important later, but when you're reading and you come across some of those things in the text, in J.K. Rowling's writing, you don't know this is going to be important later, but it'll be yeah. memorable enough that when it comes up later, it's not like, oh, what is this thing? This is coming out of left field. It's a deus ex machina. Um, it's, uh, the, the groundwork has been laid. Maybe the only one in this book that feels maybe like it, uh, you get introduced to Fox the Phoenix fairly early on, but it does feel a little deus ex machina for Fox to come in and peck out the basilisk size and heal Harry yeah. at the end. But, um, but I think in general... J.K. Rowling has a real skill for figuring out what she's going to need later on in the story and bring it just enough attention and often making you think she's done. Like it's just one of those clever bits um, that when it comes back, it's, it's um, something that's uh, pleasant to have that recollection of a reader of, Oh, she, she laid this groundwork chapters ago. Yeah. I agree with you on, on the, with Fox. Um, it, it feels like maybe it's telegraphed a little bit too well, <laughs> but um but generally speaking, she does avoid the thing that we see in those police procedurals where it's like the camera hangs on the one object in this hotel, in the hotel room. Right. Yeah. Or like one person's reaction or, and you kind of see like, okay, I know that's going to come up later. And generally speaking, it doesn't happen. Although I think, I do think Fox is a little on the nose. Um, I also want to say that I just love the, the final scene with Riddle um, when he reveals that he's Voldemort. I was completely shocked <laughs> no idea i did not see that coming at all and then harry just i love the end of pretty much all of these books and to see harry kind of stand up to voldemort and be brave and be loyal to uh dumbledore and then to have fox come in it feels so satisfying and you know maybe it's telegraphed a little bit too well early on 
but that whole thing is so satisfying and to pull out the sword and for the sword to be Gryffindor and and who could have possibly pulled out a Gryffindor sword except for a true Gryffindor person and just the whole way that it wraps up is so so satisfying to me all right one final thing I just thought of we cannot talk about this book without talking about Gilderoy Lockhart briefly no you're right <laughs> I want I want the kind of homework there are a lot of oh. I, I want the kind of homework he's assigning. <laughs> Write a poem about my greatness. Like, is that not something that we can do for uh, college students now? Is that I? I would so, do that. you want to assign that homework, no, or do you I want would, to have that? I would love to write it. I get an A on that all day long. That's a- <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. I, is- again, going back to the idea of identity, I think Lockhart, Lockhart is pretty interesting. Uh, another like point in that like data set and he's just so distinct as a character that he simultaneously feels like a caricature and real <laughs> <laughs> yep. and i don't know how she struck that particular balance and we're not talking about the film but kenneth Branagh's interpretation of gilderoy lockhart is Wonderful. absolutely amazing it's i heard so <laughs> it is i love it but I, re- I remember being in a class in college and it must have been like when the films were just coming out and I think it was in a Shakespeare class that we talked about Kenneth Branagh being cast as Gilderoy Lockhart. And the teacher said, it's great casting because he is Gilderoy Lockhart. He wrote a book called beginnings or something like that. Like his autobiography when he was 22 was called beginnings. (laughs) (laughs) I think he's, I think he's great. Oh, he does so good in it. I love how Mrs. Weasley is totally in love with him. And even Hermione, who you think Hermione of all people would be just totally disgusted by him and be able to see through it. And yet she's completely taken in. Um, And so I mean, I think it says something about like the power of appearance Mm -hmm. Uh, because Hermione is normally so insightful and so smart and she just, she just doesn't see him. She's completely incapable of seeing what a, doofus he is i just love the little bon mots that he keeps giving harry celebrity is as celebrity does harry yeah. his relationship with this harry is for me one of the most interesting parts of the book reading it again because it's like he automatically assumes that harry is him but smaller and harry's like where is this coming from like i don't i don't want this fame i don't want i don't want colin creevy taking pictures of me that's really weird and gilderoy's all about smiling for the camera and being like that public figure in the face and having all the girls swoon and it's, it, like, it, it's like chiaroscuro in which like the contrast makes us helps us to understand Harry's yeah. character so much better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I love, um, like you said, the, his relationship that he, he latches onto Harry, like as a means to increase his own celebrity, oh. even as he's like taking on this pseudo mentor role. Like, it's really interesting to see how it <laughs> plays out. But like I said, it's a simultaneously character caricature, but I could absolutely see celebrity in the real world acting that way towards like a rising star. Yeah. One one thing that just popped into my head, would the basilisk and the mirrors and all that have anything to do with Medusa? I'm still thinking about this. Is that because if you go back to the story of Medusa, you couldn't look at her without being turned to stone and her head was covered in snakes. Oh, yeah. That's just where my head goes with that. Because I don't think any... Yeah, knows. the idea of the fatal sight and in Medusa, they get turned to stone and in this, everyone gets petrified. I think there's definitely something and there. The, and the labyrinth and yeah, like there's there's certainly connections there. I've just been thinking about that for the last hour. So, you know, that's... <laughs> I think you're right. Those are going to pop up momentarily when we're done recording. <laughs> I'm going to be like, I should have... Uh, what's it called? The spirit of the escalier when you think of things as you're walking back up the stairs. 
<laughs> I've not heard that term, but I like it. <laughs> it's French, so I probably massacred the pronunciation, but you know. Oh, you're not the first to massacre some French pronunciation <laughs> on this podcast. There we go back to film That's noirs. <laughs> that was that was an early one. Film noir, yeah. film noir debate. Film noir. That was like episode three. <laughs> <laughs> oh, anything else? Uh, no, just uh, listeners, if you um, have kids just know they will likely fall in love with harry potter <laughs> too that's one of my uh delights of parenting is introducing things that i was a fan of to my children and not everything sticks you know like sometimes you think oh my daughter's gonna love this and it, she doesn't but she lat my my seven-year-old latched onto harry potter and has just absorbed everything harry potter um and it's just fun to be like We'll be uh, if we're on a long drive. All of a sudden, she'll uh, she's like, "Let's play Harry Potter trivia." <laughs> and she just wants us <laughs> to ask questions back and forth. <laughs> um, and it's just uh, the world that J.K. Rowling built is just so fun. And this is going to be one of those enduring franchises, as evidenced by you know a stage play and a new best you know uh, top film in America and in the global market being based on within the world, but uh, outside of the Harry Potter novels. I think the Harry Potter franchise is going to be going for quite a while. Yeah. I, I could see it being like Star Trek and that it just keeps going for forever and it never ends. It's okay with me. Yeah, I'm fine That's with totally. that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Zach, uh, we always ask our guests uh, when they're on for the first time uh, just to, uh, to help us get to know you a little bit. If you could have a dinner party with any three to five fictional characters, who would you want to have uh, sitting around a dinner table having a conversation together? a great question um and i should have seen this coming seeing as i've listened to a, a, a good few of these uh these podcast episodes um i think i think harry potter would have to be one of them which uh that i think has to be has to be a thing i think as of late with my reading for my uh thesis that i'm thinking of working on uh i think uh bruna Haskey from the rosa montero uh, Lagrimas and La Juvia books. She's like an android private detective, and really that is cool. uh, you won't believe how often that one comes up. Zach. Really? I mean, every <laughs> every other guest. No, I, I, I <laughs> you're love the, Bruna Husky. No, you're the first one that's ever said that one. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I can. I, 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 I vaguely remember being the first one to ever say that one because I, I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that. Uh, Bruna Husky doesn't seem like she'd have a lot to say to anybody. No. <laughs> But she'd be cool to hang out with, I feel like, and just, like, tail for she a day. Um, I think uh, Klaus Baudelaire would be my next one from the series of Unfortunate Events, because I was definitely a bookworm as a kid, and he was a bookworm, and it was his, like, book smarts that saved those kids in that series a lot. So I think I think those would be my three right now. And then I have to throw in there uh, Pele, the Brazilian soccer player. I know he's not fictional, but, <laughs> man, the way that man played, played uh, football was, like, it was fictional how he played. So it goes on there just because. So, All right. Well, well, that's a group uh, that I think would have very interesting conversations. So uh, thanks for sharing with that. And Todd, why don't you read our outro for us? Okay. That wraps up this episode. Thanks for joining us. And please subscribe to the protagonist podcast in iTunes and please leave us a review. It really helps us out. If you're a new listener, just a note about our back catalog. We switched up our format a bit at episode 13, so our first dozen episodes are a bit meandering in terms of discussion and length. If you like this episode, you should go back and check out episode 43, which is about Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Uh, 
Links to things we've talked about in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com. That's also where you can find a list of all of our shows. You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mack, and at Jay Dorowski. Our producer, Andrew, is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. Zach, have you got a Twitter handle? I do. It is uh, at ZNGlasset, and Glasset is G-L-A-S-S-E-T-T, at ZNGlasset. That's my Twitter, Twitter handle. Okay. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonist podcast. We have really good conversations there with our listeners and would love for you to say hello anytime. If you'd like to support our show financially, there are a few different ways you can do that. You can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by clicking on the support link on our homepage or going to patreon.com slash protagonist. All supporters on Patreon receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers. You can also go to protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon to make all of your Amazon purchases. Just a reminder, it looks exactly like regular Amazon and costs you nothing more, but we get a small kickback from your purchase. And finally, don't forget to sign up for a 30-day free trial of audible.com by going to audibletrial.com slash protagonist. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. Or you could listen to the Audible version uh, by going to protagonist. No, wait, which one is it, Todd? Audible.com. <laughs> okay. Or you could listen to the Audible version by going to audible.com slash protagonist. Is it slash protagonist or slash protagonist podcast? That's slash protagonist. Okay. Or you could. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just saw Andrew like, curling up into a fetal position as he's <laughs> listening to me struggle with this uh, from memory ad read.